Welcome everyone to another episode of Dialectic. Today we have a conversation with two very special guests. We have Dean Deidre Keller. Dean Deidre Keller is the Dean of the Florida A&M University College of Law in Orlando, Florida. Prior to joining Family Law, she was the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the Ohio Northern University Claude W. Pettit College of Law, where she taught for 10 years. Dean Keller's teaching experience includes property, intellectual property, law and literature, internet law, legal problem solving and analysis, estates, wills and trusts, and many more. Her writing is centered on intellectual property, personhood theory, and critical race theory. Academically, she strives to evaluate intellectual property while emphasizing racial justice. We also have Kim Tignor. Kim Tignor is the executive director of the Institute for Intellectual Property and Social Justice. Her expertise includes intellectual property, free expression, tech innovation, diversity in media, and economic justice. Throughout her career, Kim has focused on legal issues surrounding underprivileged persons and advancing the causes of equality and social justice. She's particularly well-versed in working across multicultural issues and topics of key interest to activists and artists of color. Prior to this role, Kim led the policy team at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, where I had the pleasure of working under her. Here's our very special conversation. We hope you all enjoy. I'm so excited to have you both here today. I actually wrote my comment on intellectual property and race, so it's so exciting to be able to talk about this. So welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Could you both share a bit about who you are and what brought you to this type of work, specifically intellectual property? So um, I, I got here sort of in a roundabout fashion. <laughs> um, I, I always tell this the story about my career having been accidental in many ways, and that's true. I graduated from undergrad, not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life next, but I was already a mother. And so I went, I was kind of trying to decide, do I want to get a PhD or do I want to go to law school? And I didn't really know any lawyers, didn't really have any idea what lawyers did. True story. My mother is the first person in my family to get a degree, period. So I thought, well, I'll take a job in a law firm and kind of see what lawyers do, right? And figure it out from there. So I took a job as a legal secretary and I did that for four years and I had two more children. And then I was like, I could do this. I could go to law school. I could be a lawyer. While I was working in law firms, I became a paralegal. I did some corporate paralegal work. And the part of it that I really liked the most was trademarks. It was just fun, interesting, um, highly technical work and intellectually challenging. So I went to law school with trademarks kind of on my mind as a potential career. Enjoyed law school, loved all the IP stuff I studied in law school. Um, but when I was looking for jobs, I still wasn't 100% certain that I was going to be an IP lawyer, right? People would ask me, do you know what kind of lawyer you want to be? And I would say, no, but I know what kind of lawyer I don't want to be. I know that I don't want clients calling me crying, right? And so <laughs> IP felt like a pretty safe space um, where clients would not call me crying. That turned out not to be the case, incidentally. Um, but it seemed like, right, at the outset, it seemed like that that would be true. So I spent four years doing IP work. Um, some patent litigation and trademark and copyright counseling and litigation and really enjoyed it. But at that point, I decided to take my life and career to academics. If you're keeping count by now, I have, I'm the mother of four children. They are 10 and under. 
all four of them are 10 and under. And, you know, not that's not exactly conducive to working at big firms, which is what I was doing at that point. And so that's kind of how I, I became an academic. It was my children have been sort of at the forefront of my decisions about my career. And they, they were at the forefront of my decision about taking my career into the race space as well, right? So I started teaching um, at a place that is not very diverse at all. And while I was there, Trayvon Martin was killed. And at the time, my I had a son who was about a year younger than Trayvon Martin. And when George Zimmerman was acquitted, he sort of demanded some answers about that, none of which I had for him. And I had to really kind of come to terms with the fact that I had gotten this law degree in the first place to make an impact for my kids. And I wasn't doing that. I wasn't doing as much of that as I could be doing. And so I decided that I was going to move um, my writing and service work, et cetera, into the race space. And so that's kind of how I, I ended up on this trajectory. Really, it was, you know, I'm the mother of five boys, five black sons. And I was like, I need to have answers <laughs> for these questions for my boys. I need to at least be able to tell them that I did everything I could do. Right. And so that's kind of how I ended up in the in the race and IP space. I wanted to build on the work that I was already doing and use it to have an impact on racial justice really so that I could be accountable to my children. That's beautiful. No, I love that. And I just feel like it. So into that, I'm going to cut mine a little short because I feel like a lot of those themes really resonate with my journey as an attorney, a lawyer, right? Where it's just like, how do I serve my community? How do I leave this world in a better place than how I found it? And how can I ensure that you know, my daughters are proud when they talk about the work that I do and how I am contributing to my time, you know, on this planet and taking up this space. And so I'm going to fast forward to when I found myself at Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Love, which, you know, yay, shout out to Lawyers Committee, um, where we had a lot of fun. But I worked on a portfolio of traditional civil rights issues ranging from voting rights, housing discrimination. And, you know, I also had a portfolio for economic justice. Under that portfolio, I was able to pick up um, or that's where the intellectual property work um, fell, right? But you have to imagine as things started to become hyper politicized on the Hill, certain policy issues just move, right? But what I found was that the intellectual property work still moved. Members were still willing to work across the aisle and still negotiate on issues around intellectual property. So take that and add a layer of tech innovation and the promise that tech innovation brings to historically marginalized communities and how it was democratizing um, a number of different industries and allowing folks, it was lowering the threshold for entry for a number of folks. And it really signaled to me that this was an opportunity and a really important moment for our members to understand just how significant these, these emerging sub-economies were, right? And continue to be. 
but also the opportunity that was then presented in within marginalized communities and underserved communities. We're seeing now all of these small business owners and creative entrepreneurs that are creating jobs, economic stability within underserved communities. And then on top of that, they are serving, they are providing services and products that are directed towards these underserved communities. And so for me, it just became incredibly important to figure out what can I do to lift up these communities? How can I build upon and ensure that this momentum continues? And then, you know, the other thing that made me fall in love with this body of work is that it was the idea of what can I do as a policymaker, um, as an advocate, as a lawyer? What do I do to help lift up the great storytellers of our time, right? I feel like the older you get, you know, the more you come to realize that it is the it's the arts it is the stories it is the music it is those are the things that kind of stay with you right it is the images of how we are presented it to the world and in culture that really stay with you and imprint in a lot of ways and you identify in this part in this world and how you move in the world and so for me the other part was well, what can i do to to protect and support the great storytellers of my time, right? And ensure that my girls get to grow up in a world where they see themselves presented authentically, right? Not in a way that someone else views them, but how women that look just like them present them in this world. And so, you know, I really fell in love with my intellectual property um, portfolio and um, was then connected with the Institute for Intellectual Property and Social Justice. And Dean Keller has come and spoken with us. And I'm hoping that, you know, when we're back in person again, that she will join us once more. Um, but it's a beautiful community of people who are interested in addressing, you know, the disparate impact that intellectual property systems have on marginalized communities. But, you know, I was socialized with their work and, you know, really just found my tribe and found folks that really were just as passionate about intellectual property systems and race equity as I was, um, which is how I did get to meet Dean Keller. <laughs> That's amazing. And I think those, I really love the fact you both pointed to your kids setting that kind of being that force and that momentum and serving your communities being that force and momentum because I think it Nicole and Marlon and I have often had discussions around what does it look like to be in this like to be in law school and still stay connected to your drive and your passions and your community so hearing how you all have let that continue to inspire your work is really really beautiful and yeah so I think I want to touch a little bit on what you said Kim about policy because as you mentioned you had a policy portfolio so could you give a little bit of more insight as to how policies directly impact communities? So I think oftentimes it's like this like curtain that people don't really know what's happening behind those closed doors. So could you tell us a little bit more about that and how that works and how exactly your org mobilizes policy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I feel like the easiest and most like immediate example would be the CASE Act. Right. And so the CASE Act had been making its way through the Hill um, for quite some time, like a number of sessions. It was just, you know, getting close or passing the House, maybe not make it on the Senate or vice versa. But the CASE Act, you know, for those of you who may not be following, the CASE Act essentially was legislation that widened your or diversified your tool set 
as far as how you were able to protect your intellectual property. And the goal was to put tools directly into the hands of the creator. So it low, so for one, they created a court where you could just present yourself, right? Whereas traditionally it's very expensive for you to be able to do any sort of litigation um, to push back on copyright infringement. This lowered the threshold for that. And so just things such as that just really did put the power or more power into the hands of the creator. It is, it's really timely and interesting to me that ultimately it ended up getting passed as part of the COVID relief bill. They rolled it into that. And I think it's interesting because if you think about what happened over the pandemic and the way that we engaged virtually and how our intellectual property powered a lot of the interactions that we had over COVID, right? Where we're watching as bloggers, music makers, um, you know, our great creators, the creators are connecting in really innovative and creative and virtual ways. And they were able to remain in contact with their community, but they also made themselves more vulnerable, right? To any sort of, you know, theft or misappropriation of their intellectual property. Um, so I just thought it was just really timely the way that the, that, that the case act ended up being passed. But now we're at this interesting moment where we're implementing it, right? And so we're watching as the copyright office, and I and I and I want to commend them for the creativity that they're bringing to how they're trying to roll it out. Because the big question is, okay, what do we do to ensure that marginalized creators are aware of this change? How do we make sure that they know how to, you know, how to exercise these new rights? And so now it's a time to think about, like, uh, think about how do we get extremely targeted, extremely intentional about the outreach and education part of this law now that it's been, you know, actually enacted. Um, so that's just, and so that's what we do, right? So we work with different offices. We're working out in the field. We do a lot of community engagement, a lot of community education. We try to bridge the gap between a lot of the folks that are that are on the Hill and may not necessarily be in the community every day. We try to bridge that gap, provide feedback, show them, you know, areas that they might've missed, um, communities that they may not be thinking about that they need to be thinking about or even just talking to them about how they're phrasing or, or, or articulating different concepts. So, you know, that's been, that's, that's one part of the way that our, our policy work um, comes together. That's interesting. And then I'm gonna shift to Dean Keller about noting, so you've worked in a firm and now you're also in scholarship. So could you kind of note for us, like in conjunction with policy, how does scholarship kind of move this goal as well? Right, absolutely. So it's really interesting that probably the the coolest part of coming to academia is that you get to spend time thinking about the things that interest you as opposed to the things that your clients need you to think about, right, and research. And so right off the bat, the, the first piece of scholarship that I wrote was actually about uh, Gone with the Wind and the Wind Ungone. And it was completely connected to uh, practice. So I had met the author, Alice Randall, of The Wind Done Gone when I was practicing in Atlanta. And she's a fascinating human who, <laughs> um, who has spent her, her life 
in the creative arts, right? So she has a couple of novels. She writes country music, um, right? So she's this really interesting person. And I had met her during the pendency of her litigation against uh, the, the holder of the copyright in Gone with the Wind. And I was just fascinated by her case because, and this kind of gets to something that Kim was just mentioning, right? When you are Alice Randall and you're up against the owner of the copyright in Gone with the Wind, which is SunTrust, by the way, there's a, a bit of a, <laughs> a, a you're at a bit of a disadvantage, right? And she was alleging fair use and ultimately did win on that um, front. But to get there, she had to go up through the 11th circuit, right? And I thought, you know, when I met her, I thought a less resourced artist would have given up much earlier, but she had the resources to obtain great counsel, right? Which is how I met her through her counsel. And it, it just struck me very promptly, like fair use is this great tool on paper, Right. But to actually make it work for you in the world, you have to have a not insignificant amount of resources at your disposal. Right. And so that was the, the first article that I ever wrote was, a rep, was about the Gone with the Wind and the Wind Ungone. And I had and it made me sort of interested. I mean, I had been interested in this disparity, which is a disparity about resources. Right. So Kim mentioned um, the Case Act and making it easier for artists and uh, creators to enforce their copyright, right? But there's the flip side of that too, right? How easy is it for you as a creator to defend against claims of infringement by content owners? And I can tell you, it is not easy, right? It is in fact quite hard and quite expensive. And so those questions, which are sort of bigger than one client or one case, those are the kinds of questions that scholarship can engage in a meaningful way. And then your hope as a scholar is that folks like him will take up those the issues that you have spent time thinking through and put them into action. Put the the problems that you see with the system, you know, take the task of finding solutions to those problems. So as a scholar, you're kind of hoping that this exercise is not merely intellectual, right? That it will have some impact in the world. And so you, you're, at least my goal as a scholar is to provide the foundation for, you know, the, the intellectual and um, doctrinal foundation for folks to argue for change. That is a um, really great foundation to kind of shift this over into what IP, the IP landscape looks like in 2021. I'm going to go ahead and shift that to Marlon. So the first question is more of just defining terms. So before we delve into what critical race IP is, could you both share with our audience what IP is along with its scope and how it governs our lives? So when I talk about IP, I'm talking about the full range of IP rights. So the big three, copyright, trademark, patent, and I refer to them as the big three because they all have federal statutes that govern. Copyright, of course, governs all of the 
artistic content that we think of, you know, TV, music, movies, photographs, you name it, copyright touches it. It touches some things you might not expect it to touch as well, like um, code for, you know, uh, games and et cetera. So that's copyright. That's the world of copyright. And then trademark, uh, and trademark is actually the, the fun one in the sense that I have found that you can explain trademark to anybody because they're everywhere, right? So the McDonald's arches, that's a trademark. Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola is probably the world's most famous trademark. It's literally everywhere. Uh, and so we're surrounded by these symbols that indicate source, right? That's what a trademark is. It's a, a word or symbol that indicates source. It can also be, um, you know, if you want to go into the trade dress, it can be the shape. So the shape of a Coca-Cola bottle is protected under the Lanham Act as an indication of source. So that's trademark. And then patent is the statute that protects uh, novel inventions, right? So you, when you think about, you know, pharmaceuticals, right? The conversation around COVID vaccines, for example, has a lot of that has been about whether we should uh, protect those under patent or kind of make them free for distribution. And so that's the world of patent, it's novel inventions. And then when I'm thinking about IP, I'm also thinking about kind of the ancillary uh, state law regimes being trade secrets, right? So a trade secret, anything that can be patented effectively can be the subject matter of a trade secret as well. Just the kind of protection that you're getting um, in a trade secret is very different than the kind of protection you're getting in a patent. Perfect example of how they are different is if you decide to protect your invention by way of a trade secret, someone can reverse engineer it. If you are protecting by way of patent, they cannot. That constitutes infringement. The scope of trade secrets is also broader. So for example, um, I always use the example of my grandmother's rum cake recipe, which she will not give to us. Um, to this day, she will not give it to us. She's like, this is the list of ingredients, but she won't tell you the exact measurements, okay, for the rum cake. I have been trying to reverse engineer this rum cake for many years, and I have yet to succeed. You can hold a recipe as a trade secret, but you can't patent it. You can't copyright it, right? So the scope of, um, of trade secrets is broader than the federal, uh, some of the federal regimes. And then the other state regime that I have spent a good deal of time thinking about is right of publicity. And right of publicity and copyright very often overlap, which is to say you can have a right of publicity and a copyright in the same thing. So for example, I have hanging in my office, um, a self-portrait that my daughter did. It's a painting. And my daughter is the creator and therefore the copyright owner, right? But it's she is also the person pictured. And so she has a right of publicity in that painting as well. I infringe upon both of these rights every year because I use this thing as an example in my property class. Um, but she's given me the, the actual picture. So, you know, I'm going to assume that I have a license, an implied license. <laughs> so, so that's basically the scope of IP. Kim, did you, did I miss anything? Of course not. No, I want all of the listeners to really understand 
how fortunate they are to just have Dean Keller. I mean, that's why I laughed when, you know, when no one could see that Dean Keller was encouraging me to go first, but I am no fool for no one would do that better (laughs) and be able to streamline these concepts like professors. So that was fantastic. (laughs) I have nothing to add. And to sort of continue our conversation, so as we know, the U.S. is largely a consumer um, country. You know, we're always buying stuff. Or, and along with that, though, there's also been a growing tide of entre- entrepreneurs, you know, with the pandemic and sort of people trying to uh, begin small businesses and perhaps people shifting careers. Maybe the pandemic gave them a time to really think about what they were doing and whether or not they wanted to go back to it. Uh, So just wanted uh, to sort of hear your thoughts on what the current trends in the IP world are right now and where you see things going in light of what I was just talking about, consumerism and entrepreneurship. Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting because I think you're that's so the question is spot on, right? It's that this past year we've seen an explosion um, as far as, you know, we do a lot of work looking at the creator economy, right? Especially the online creator economy. And um, we're actually releasing a report at the end of the year that actually quantifies and ties the number to how many creators, and looking especially at how many creators of color are participating in these economies and how much money is being generated online through these creator economies. Because what we've been finding is, is that as we do outreach to members um, of Congress and with elected officials, is that they don't quite grasp just how much money and it's being generated and how many people are participating um, in the creator economy, especially online. And so what we've seen in the past two years is a complete explosion as far as um, the money that's being generated online and, um, you know, as well as the number of creators that are participating The other thing that we're seeing that's really interesting is that people of color over-index as far as participating, right? So we have a heightened representation um, as far as who's, as far as percentages, as far as who's participating in in the number of creators. So it demonstrates, and what it's really shown us is that the other piece of it is though, is that we've also noticed that there's, there's a pay disparity. And you guys know this, you've seen it, you know, in a number of different, you know, from TikTok to YouTubers, you guys already know this, we've already seen it and a number of our creators have always felt it. But what we thought was really important was to actually put a value to the disparities and how much money was being made and how what we were finding is, is that, you know, most of our creators are making, our creators of color were making about 67 to 77 cents on the dollar um, as compared to their white counterparts, right? And so what we have come to understand is that there is a lot of potential that is happening and a lot of promise in participating in economies, but there is a lot of accountability, a lot of work and a lot of oversight that needs to take place as well as far as how these platforms are engaging with creators of color. So I feel like just all that to say that, you know, those are just some of the trends that we're noticing. I think the other thing that is really exciting is that 
you're no, I, I've done a lot of work with a lot of state legislatures. They're really interested about how to be thoughtful about ensuring that these communities, these marginalized communities, these creative entrepreneurs, what can they do to be intentional about ensuring that they make a comeback? As you can imagine, they have, um, as far as the safety net goes, and as far as the most vulnerable kind of slipping through the cracks, those are our creative entrepreneurs that are, you know, creating from the margins. Um, but I have been encouraged uh, by the effort and the interest in trying to ensure that these communities are able to, to survive and make a comeback from the pandemic as well. Dean Keller, is there anything you would add to the trends you've been noticing or... I actually thought that was a great um, segue into critical race IP, right? Because part of what uh, Kim is is describing is really looking at these um, systems and trends from the perspective of marginalized creators, right? And so that is that's effectively the the argument of critical race IP, right? Is that when you think about, you know, how well is our copyright system working? Well, you know, if you are a giant uh, content owner, that system's been working really well for you for a long time. But if you're an independent creator, and even more so if you're an independent creator that doesn't have that safety net, that doesn't have a ton of resources at their disposal, that system hasn't been working for you very well ever. And so critical race IP really tries to shift our focus to look at the systems and these legal questions from the perspective of marginalized folks, right? We didn't make that up, incidentally. I want to be really clear about that. <laughs> um, we are borrowing from, you know, greats like Derek Bell, who insisted, right, that the project of racial justice required considering legal systems and outcomes from the perspective of the faces at the bottom of the well. That's that's Derek Bell's terminology. And so in Critical Race IP, what Professor Anjali Vats and I do is try to apply that kind of lens to intellectual property doctrine. And the, the thing that Kim said that's so important is they're really part of the reason that we have to do that. And part of the reason we have to do it now is because so much of our economy is tied up in things that are IP or that should be IP, right? Um, so much of what is generating wealth right now in America is in one way or another touched by the intellectual property system. And so if you think about that, and, and you know sort of the history of cultural creation in America, then you know that this is there's absolutely a race question at the center of that, at the center of those trends. Those are not um, new trends, incidentally, right? Like Kim mentioned that people of color are, are over-indexed in these uh, digital platforms. But the truth is that if you look at American culture, you, you what you find is that so much of American culture is driven by, you know, African-Americans, by marginalized folks. That's true over the history of America, so critical race IP really tries to center those folks and to take account of the history of their treatment by, by these systems. I love that point 
Because one of the major challenges that we are always dealing with when we do our community outreach work, right, is that we as marginalized communities have received a programming that has told us that our creative works are, let me rephrase that. One of the challenges that we are constantly trying to address is ensuring that the folks that we work with understand that their creative works are intellectual property, are worthy of intellectual property protection, and that they are valuable and worthy of all these things at its inception, not once it goes viral, not once someone's trying to steal or infringe upon their rights. It is of value at its inception. And that throughout the history of this country, people of color have received programming that that is not the case. And so what we are always working and, and trying to break down and working against is that programming. Um, and to encourage folks to engage with policymakers, to engage with academics, and to engage with lawyers to ensure that they have the tools to protect their works that are indeed worthy of all of these rights and protections. Thank you both. Um, I'm just going to continue Marlon's thought with some more questions about critical race IP in particular. So Dean Keller, you were talking about how critical race IP has its roots in critical race theory with some of Derek Bell's scholarship. And something we've been talking a lot this year, talking about a lot this year is critical race theory being under attack in a lot of legislation. Has that sort of spilled over into critical race intellectual property? So this is a great question that I'm going to kind of push back on a little bit, because what has been under attack is only nominally critical race theory, right? The folks who are legislating against critical race theory don't know the first thing about Derrick Bell or Faces at the Bottom of the Well or Cheryl Harris and whiteness is property, right? Um, I can assure you none of that is being taught in K-12 schools. Literally, like I've gone out looking for what K to 12 school, I have a fourth grader. So if I can find a place in Florida that's teaching critical race theory, we're going there. It's not happening. So the thing that's being articulated or, or um, legislated against under the guise of critical race theory is really just American history, like American history, desanitized American history. So I, let's put that over there <laughs> where, where it belongs, right? It just That's not critical race theory. And most of the folks who are out here on platforms, right, about critical race theory is, you know, shouldn't be taught in K-12 schools, cannot articulate for you what critical race theory is. Um, they just know that they don't want it around children, right? Uh, Beloved, which came under attack in Virginia, uh, Beloved's not critical race theory. Toni Morrison, not a critical race theorist. Fantastic, wonderful author. Um, it's insane that they're pulling her books from classrooms, not critical race theory. So I'll say that. And then the next thing that I'll say is folks haven't really made their way around to attacking critical race IP. This is, you know, if critical race theory is a misunderstood thing, as I'm suggesting, critical race IP is even more kind of niche. It's newer, right? Critical race theory has been around since the 80s. 
And critical race IP is really a much uh, more developing body of scholarship. So no, I'm not getting hate mail or anything like that, but maybe it's just a matter of time. I mean, we'll see. (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) I do really appreciate that distinction because Marlon, Ozuchi, and I were all in the same critical race theory course last semester, and it was incredibly difficult and not at all the K through 12 level doctrine. (laughs) So I wanted to pivot back to Kim, who started already talking about critical race IP in practice. You talked about kind of some of the thematic issues that are involved in putting this in practice, but we were wondering if you had any examples of ways that this conversation could be transformed into a tangible solution for creators. I mean, I think this podcast in and of itself, right? I mean, to me, conversations, education, and engagement around issues like this is huge. And one thing that we take for granted or a a number of folks take for granted. And what we are trying to create is just those moments where people are having thoughts about starting a business, creating um, a work, or just something really innovative. That moment where a lot of tables may have someone that says, oh, you need to talk to an IP attorney about that. We're trying to create that moment within our own community and in creative communities. And so, you know, I think it's just really important to be intentional about doing that outreach within communities of color, within creative centers, and being able to create more organic moments where you can say, that is brilliant. You need to talk to an IP attorney. You need to be thinking about the protections innate to this body of work that you endeavor to create. So, you know, like I applaud you guys for even curating this conversation and having conversations about intellectual property. Because again, I just feel like the more engagement, the more education and the more conversations we have about these things, um, about critical race and intellectual property is how we start to socialize the work and the concepts. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I'm excited to actually be able to host the conversation with you all about that, because I think oftentimes, yeah, IP seems like a little distant and it seems like Like what you said earlier, Kim, about people not knowing that from the conception, you have an idea that is protectable and, I'm sorry, an expression that is protectable. Let me get my doctrine right. But (laughs) So this is really important to me to be able to set that space so people know how much it it governs our lives, how present it is in our lives, and that we are also able to access it. I wanted to kind of turn to like, like questions of ownership, because I think ownership especially as people of color, it's always kind of been a weird, a weird relationship to ownership, right? So I'm curious about what you all think about sustainable forms of ownership. And are there alternative measures of ownership? Should we be replicating certain things like capitalism? Like what does it look like to kind of think about another alternative to ownership and value? So this is such a great question. And I think um, it's one that scholars have spent some time thinking about. Watsma Watsang has spent some time thinking about this in the context of uh, Kente Cloth. And now I'm not going to remember the name of her book and it's going to drive. I think it's called um, That Copyright Thing Doesn't Work Here. It's something like that. That's close. And uh, it's effectively, the, the argument of the book is effectively that 
we have if we have a system that is oppressive, right? In the ways that we've been talking about copyright being oppressive. I'll pick on copyright for now. We can we can pick on patent and trademark another day. You kind of make alterations around the margins. Have you really done anything? Should we be imagining entirely new systems, entirely new systems of protecting um, innovation? And that question comes up all the time in the traditional knowledge space, for example, because you know most of what is regarded as traditional knowledge, you can't point to a single creator, right? Most of it is kind of community knowledge. Uh, most of it is not novel in the sense that, you know, folks have been using that herb to address that illness for generations. And yet there's something valuable there, right? How do you protect that value? Um, it's This is a question that we're not going to answer today, but I think it's an important question to be asking. What would a truly liberatory system for the protection of innovation look like? And then how do we get from here to there? I think those are really important questions and really complicated ones. I don't have, I don't have an answer to that at all. Right. And these are the types of questions that I love putting towards like our, to, towards our academics um, and how they're able to really give some thought to things like this. I would say that always on my mind is how tech has not only changed, it has not only given, it's not only changed the way we, we actually execute and, and create, but it also has changed the culture of creating, right? And the levels of collaboration um, and how now, I mean, if you even look at how music is created, right? Especially over the course of the pandemic where you'll have 13, 14 people in their homes, you know, receiving a beat, adding a layer, sending it on, right? And it just begs the question of, you know, do the, the music copyright systems, did they even envision is it even equipped? Uh, right? Does this thing work? What? What is? The, I'm going to find this book. Dean Keller, what was it? Does, does this thing fit? <laughs> I put the link in the chat. It's called the copyright thing doesn't work here. Yeah, and so, but that's the thing, right? And I feel like the way that our creators share and collaborate um, so quickly and so readily, um, it does beg the question as to you know. It, it, does it work here? And if not, what could it look like? And how could, you know, what does, what, what, what how do we continue to incentivize creativity and innovation uh, while honoring the fact and, and understand, reconciling ourselves to the fact that the way that we're working and the way that we create has changed? Yeah, I think that's definitely helpful to kind of sit with that and just kind of hear your thoughts on it. Because I did take a class, I had the honor of taking class with um, a critical race studies professor here and indigenous scholar, Professor Angela Riley, um, who I'm gonna put in a plug for her work in defense of property, which kind of sits with those kind of intersections of ownership and community and traditional knowledge. And I think it definitely is something important to think about. And not to have such a great theoretical question and then shift back again into like, ownership in terms of NFTs, but Kim, I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about emerging platforms and what you've seen with artists of color specifically and how they're using NFTs. 
And if you could also say what you think NFTs are, because I know some people are like, we hear NFTs, non-fungible tokens out here now, but it's like a, a cloud to me. I don't really know what's going on in there. I, it's, it, I, I have to tell you, it's like a cloud to me as well, right? It's like one of those things where I think I know it when I see it. But it made, I was tickled over this, uh, over the course of the pandemic, one of the things that constantly kept happening is that our artists were reaching out to us and talking to us about, you know, they, and this is what our folks do, the creativity and the innovation that they bring to their work just always blows my mind. But, you know, in a pandemic, we see a boom in public art and we see a boom in, you know, a more experiential form of art. Right. And so we were having uh, we were we were contacted by a number of muralists um, and artists that were taking over empty warehouses and creating these entire spaces. And then they would bring in teams to digitize the entire experience. And so the question for them is, okay, so we want to be able to market this as an NFT. What does this mean? You know, who owns what? How are we, you know, and, and then, of course, it's it's not just one artist. It's an entire team of artists. And then it's, you know, everything's moving fast and there are no contracts in between anyone. And then the, the team that's digitizing it, they're still not clear as to who owns what um, and what it all means. And, you know, it is terribly exciting and horrifying, especially when you have something that has, you know, been talked about as something that will, again, create a more equitable opportunity. It has this promise of equity when it comes to marginalized communities. But the second that I hear that it, it pretty much sounds like the Wild West as far as ownership and copyright, I'm most concerned about the, uh, the most vulnerable, right? And who who will actually suffer the most and who will actually be exploited in these exchanges. So, you know, that's my very long way of saying that, that I am cautiously optimistic <laughs> about NFTs. Um, I feel like there's just a lot that we don't understand. Um, and I am especially cautious when it comes to our under-resourced. Yeah, I mean, if we're sitting here, we're like, what are NFTs? Like, I, I would feel like many other people are like, what are NFTs? <laughs> so I did also want to um, give space for Dean Keller to mention, as we were talking offline before, the scholar who is working on this so that listeners can go find some more information on this. Absolutely. So Tanya Evans, who is a professor of law at Penn State Dickinson, if I were going down the NFT rabbit hole, I would read her work. She has an article called Decrypt. Oh, I'm sorry. She's quoted in an article called Decrypt. The NFT craze offers easy money and hard copyright questions that came out in March of this year. And then she does, she has an article published, a BYU symposium article called, uh, let's see if I can find that one. Is it Crypto Kitties, Cryptography and Copyright? So that's in the, that's a uh, I want to say it's a 2019 piece at the BYU Copyright and Trademark Symposium. Everyone should go check those out. I mean, I know I will because I want to understand a little bit more. I'm also a little bit interested in social media. We've touched on this a little bit with people on digital platforms now and um, creators like, for instance, Jalea Harmon on TikTok, who had a big moment with her big dance craze, yet 
was not associated as the creator until the, the trend was starting to die down. So I'm just curious about what you all think about whether we should be moving IP into the digital space, or is that a space that's better left limited and open, um, like fashion, which is known as like a negative IP space. So what do you all think about that? I, 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 I feel like it's, it, I'm on both sides of this one. I have not, I don't have a definitive answer to that. I think that to the, so TikTok, YouTube, I think that our, we are a little hyper-focused on just the IP part of what's happening to a number of our creators. I think that, you know, as far as thinking about algorithms and transparency, there's just a number of things that are at play here as to whether or not, um, as far as um, a more equitable exchange with our creators on a number of these platforms. And so, you know, I think that intellectual property is one part of the answer. I do worry that we are, as um, a number of our creators are hyper-focused on that one part and not also being mindful of the other ways that we're being disenfranchised on these platforms. Yeah, that's interesting. The algorithm part for sure is interesting to hear about. I mean, yeah, because it impacts who it is, who gets to be seen and who is not, right? And I mean, we've already seen studies, you know, looking at Twitter, looking at YouTube. So one study showed that, you know, algorithms and trying to figure out, you know, what is offensive language and what is not. These algorithms, they just it had a disparate impact on marginalized communities because the way that we use language and the way that it so quickly evolves, right? It just, it couldn't figure out what to do with us. So it just deplatformed us. It just takes us off. And so you'll see like a number of Twitter activists had a lot of their tweets either, you know, either they were deplatformed themselves or the tweets were, were taken down. And so, you know, it is a, it, 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 it is a number of issues that we should be looking at as far as ensuring that, um, you know, that our, that, that our creators are actually being able to share and be seen. That's actually a great segue to uh, a question that we had about leadership and advocacy. So there's a notion that, you know, once you're in a leadership position, it sort of means that you have to sacrifice your advocacy, yet these are the roles that, you know, could potentially bring institutional change or change to the institution that you're working for. So both of you inhabit leadership roles. And so can you talk a little bit about balancing that role and uh, not compromising being a zealous advocate for your communities? Absolutely. Um, it's, it's hard, <laughs> right? It is. It's so I, in this role, um, and I guess, to, to a lesser extent, when I was associate dean for academic affairs at Ohio Northern as well, I have to be careful of speaking and being seen as speaking for the college, right? And the way that I sort of manage this, me personally, is that I, I pick my battles. And so there are a great many issues that I um, feel very strongly about. But that doesn't mean I need to be the face of all of those issues. So you all may know, I'm sure you know about the, the Texas reproductive justice 
situation um, that is that uh, there is some move here in Florida to reproduce. Um, that is an issue that I feel very strongly about. It's one that I can't be the face of. And so in part because there are folks in the college who are better situated, who are subject matter experts, right, um, who are just better situated to advocate on that front. And so I and and because it is now uh, kind of in the legislative um, pipeline here, I'm not in a position to be out front on that issue. CRT I'm, I'm a subject matter expert in, and um, it may well be that there are legislative moves against CRT here as well, although note well, again, it's not really CRT, right? It is this other thing that is being nominally referred to as CRT. And that's, you know, that's just a hill that I'm willing to die on. So I will be out front talking about CRT whenever the opportunity presents itself, fully recognizing that, that there are potential consequences for that. And so I just, I, I pick my battles strategically and decide, you know, I decided many years ago that racial justice, if I'm going to die on a hill, I'm going to die on that one. I'm going to die on the hill of racial justice. So that's, that's how I kind of make those decisions and determinations. But I think the, the most important lesson there for me is uh, doing social justice work is hard, right? It's hard. No matter where you're doing it or what platform you're doing it from, it's hard. And so you have to, it can only be collective work. It can never be individual work. Other people have, you know, they sing those notes better than you do. And they should be the soloist on that particular song. And so I just, I remind myself of that constantly, right? And part of that is the challenge, right, of managing the leadership role in the advocacy. And part of it is just the challenge of doing this work and caring for yourself, right? And so uh, just, we have to always, always, always take care of our collectives, and recognize that sometimes it's going to be you out front and sometimes it's going to be, you know, some, some other uh, partner, some other person. And that's a good thing. I'd say just building on that metaphor of, of it being a choir, right? And it is, it is a collective and, you know, different folks will have a different, you know, the soloist will change and sometimes one soloist will stay too long and that's, that's fine too. But the other piece of it is, is that it's slow. It's hard work. It's emotionally, the, it's so much emotional labor and it's slow. I mean, th these conversations about criminal justice reform, sentencing reform, these are generations old. Like these are, we have advocates who have been working on this for decades. Um, so one thing that has always, always, always been very true for me at least is the importance of really absorbing um, the wins, right? Because I think that, you know, as folks who are very passionate about the social justice space, we have the habit of kind of being like, okay, that's done, what's next, what's next, what's next? And so it is always important to take a moment for those wins, be it the very small ones, because they don't come often and they are hard earned. I would say the other major challenge is 
And it's, it's a very strange one to have, but it is when you love what you do, it really gets difficult to draw boundaries. You just want to throw your full self in it and you want to help everyone and everything and every cause related to what you do. And so similar to Dean Keller's um, earlier point about choosing your battles, um, it relates to just the, the, the whole concept of just kind of drawing boundaries and being mindful of not to pour only to everyone else's cup and to, you know, the, the, the self-care and the wellness piece is so important because it is hard work and it's long hours and it's just so easy to pour your cup dry because you love the work so much. And so it's just really, really important to be mindful of those things. I guess we're on to our last point, which is about the future and looking forward. And we would love to hear about Dean Keller, what you think about the future of critical race IP scholarship and Kim, what the future plans you have are for your organization. So I am super excited actually about the future of critical race IP scholarship. Uh, Anjali Vats, who is the co-author of the critical race IP article that I wrote, has a book out called The Color of Creatorship. That's a it's great. It takes on the whole kind of breadth of IP from a critical race perspective stance. And it's really, in that sense, kind of the first of its kind. And I think it will spawn lots of critique and commentary and additional scholarship. And I think that's a great thing. I've had lots of conversations in the last year or so uh, about the book and the article. And I think um, I think it's a, a space that's been very generative recently. We just did uh, the third biennial race and IP conference last in April. And it was so wonderful to just be in that space in community with others who are, you know, beginning scholars and this is their passion. And so I'm I'm super excited to see where the scholarship goes. I think there are lots of places that it can go and will go that it hasn't gone yet. Me personally, I am the next uh, critical race IP project on my plate is a uh, race and write a publicity piece that I am, that has been backburnered behind my administrative duties of late, but um, that I'm excited to pick up over the break. And so there really hasn't been kind of a deep dive and at that intersection, the race and, and right of publicity intersection. And so um, there's lots of work still to be done in the space. I'm excited about, about what I think is going to be a lot coming up. I would say for 2022, we are excited about getting back in person for our community outreach work. Um, I have just missed, uh, you know, our community activations are a celebration of creativity where we bring together artists and musicians and policymakers and lawyers, and we're all having conversations and we're all, you know, watching performances and art um, exhibits, just a celebration of intellectual property. I miss that terribly. But I will say over the pandemic, we've picked up some really interesting programming just as part of our pivot where we have been doing smaller, like industry focused cohorts 
where we're actually doing deep dives in um, specific industries and able to have really impactful, important conversations that have informed our um, advocacy and how and advised how we're talking to members of Congress about supporting emerging and independent creators. One of the things that's happening now is that we'll be doing our first, um, we do create, take creative control clinics, which is basically our community outreach. We just finished our um, virtual reality space. And so we'll be hosting one in our VR space and inviting folks to actually have these conversations there. And I think, I mean, it's really funny because, you know, we've been doing a lot of outreach with um, VR and AR developers of color um, in preparation for this, because we think that as we try to think about um, creating safe spaces in virtual and augmented reality, that's going to come from investing and promoting and supporting diverse developers. But I will tell you with, I don't know if you guys were following the news, but, you know, Nike filed their virtual logo registration um, or registered their local logo virtually. And we have been contacted by so many small business owners and creators. We are now, it just kind of like turned a light on as far as what this means, as far as how they'll be engaging and selling works, you know, in the metaverse. And so it's a really interesting moment of like, okay, what can we do to help bring our creators into these spaces and into these marketplaces um, and make sure that they're equipped with understanding what they are signing over, what they are not signing over, what rights they do and do not have, and like the tools necessary to navigate these things um, knowledgeably. So, you know, that is 2022, it should be quite the ride, um, both in person and virtually. I love that. That sounds very interesting. I'm going to check that out as well because I hadn't heard about that Nike New. But thank you so much, both of you, for being here. This has been a very incredible and very fulfilling conversation. And we only scratched the surface. So I really encourage listeners to go look up these amazing women and find out more information on what's happening in the world of IP and even better, what's happening in the world of critical race IP. Thank you so much, y'all. We appreciate it. Thank you. This, this has been fantastic. <laughs> Thank, Thank you both you. so much.